This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Miller, Orchard Systems Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Systems Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. All right, I am sitting down today with Dr. Roger Baldwin. Roger is based at UC Davis, and Roger, describe your full title and what your program tackles. Sure. I'm a cooperative extension specialist housed within the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology at UC Davis. And my area focuses on human-wildlife complex situations. Most of the work I do is in agricultural and natural resource settings, although occasionally I get questions and, and work a little bit in urban areas as well. But in particular, I work a lot with burrowing rodents in ag crops. Today, Roger, we're going to be focusing in on the burrowing rodent I get the most calls about, which is pocket gophers. First off, what should we be thinking about when worried about pocket gophers? What would be the way to identify that since with all burrowing rodents, we usually don't see the rodent, we just see the signs and the symptoms that they've been around. And that's particularly true for gophers. The vast majority of their life is spent below ground within their burrow systems, but they do pop up above ground for very short periods of time in a particular day. So for you to know that gophers are present, you're going to have to look for some other form of sign, which is usually the mounds. Mounds are usually horseshoe shaped in appearance with a plug towards the lower end of one side of the mound. Not all gopher mounds will look like that. Sometimes they're more of a just a big mound without a plug necessarily visible. But usually you'll have several mounds in a particular area, and at least one of them will exhibit that classic horseshoe shape appearance to let you know that you've got gophers in that area. What do you see most commonly as damage? I know I reached out to you just a couple of weeks ago with girdling on second leaf almonds, where you look right below the soil line and that tree is just girdled all the way around. And yet that doesn't happen all the time. So what kind of range of damage do you see out in the field from pocket gophers? The damage is most commonly experienced in younger trees because they are less able to sustain the kind of damage that we generally see from gophers, direct consumption of the taproot, which can weaken or kill the plant, and then the girdling damage, which is usually from ground level below. Uh, you will sometimes see girdling damage above ground. That's usually from other critters, voles in particular. Now, there are other kinds of damage that, that gophers can cause as well. They can damage farm equipment. They're tripping hazards for farm laborers. We can see increased weed proliferation from mounds. Basically, when the gophers are creating those mounds, they're bringing soil up to the surface. And when that happens, they're bringing weed seed with it. So we can see uh, those kinds of issues. And then we also see increased soil erosion oftentimes associated with these burrow systems. You know, basically heavy rainfall events, water will channel down through those burrow systems and lead to erosion, particularly true on hillside slopes and, and places like that. On, on really flat ground, that tends to be less of an issue, but it still can be. And then in terms of crop susceptibility, you talk about you know, young trees being the most susceptible, but they seem to be more or less attracted to different orchard crops and see more calls about problems with gophers and almonds than I do in walnut. What kind of patterns have you seen in terms of where the most issues crop up? 
the one crop that I hear the most about far as, you know, being something that gophers really like is cherries, different part of the world there. And they tend to avoid walnut. I assume it's due to the tannins and whatnot. But that's not to say that they won't damage walnuts. They absolutely do. And, but I would say it's a little bit less common in walnuts than in some of the other tree crops that are out there. But overall, I think you see relatively equal susceptibility across the different tree crops. One of the challenging parts about gophers is that they don't always feed on the root of the trees. They don't always girdle the trees. So they can be out there for extended periods and you may not see damage. And then all of a sudden in a very short period of time, that damage really pops up and you really start to see that kind of feeding activity, which is why it's easy to get lulled to sleep by gophers. In many settings, you may be thinking, well, they're not causing me any problems. I don't really need to worry about it. But when that happens in those populations can build up, you get more and more. And eventually when they do decide to start on the crops, then you can see really substantial losses. And certainly is one of the more challenging aspects of dealing with gophers. And certainly not only do we not really know attractiveness to different crops to gophers, but just anecdotally, it's been so bizarre at the Chico State Farm where we have an almond variety trial. <laughs> that you've been to and shot a video on setting traps, there's just one rootstock out there that is different than the whole rest of the field. And it's replicated four times. And for some reason, the gophers have just annihilated those Hanson peach almond rooted trees. And yet the Crimsk 86 and the rest of the field has done just fine. And, and that's not to say that there isn't a preference. It just hasn't really ever been looked at too extensively. It, does seem like the stone fruit, though, are the ones that tend to be maybe a little bit more attractive, at least when I hear people give me anecdotes of damage and susceptibility based on certain varieties and certain types of trees. It usually seems to be the stone fruits that uh, I hear about the most. Roger, before we get into the different ways to manage and control for gophers, what should we be thinking about in terms of time of year for when to manage gophers? When is that going to be most effective? So I would certainly argue that the best time of year to manage gophers is winter through early to mid-spring. One of the reasons why I think it's important is because that's when we generally have high soil moisture. When you have high soil moisture, that leads to more mounding activity by gophers. And the way that we target all of these different management tools for gophers is by finding their tunnel systems. And we can't find them if we don't have the mounds to key in on. Also, when that soil is moist, it's much easier to probe in and to dig down into if you're going to set traps or just simply the probing action if you're going to apply bait or burrow fumigants through those probe holes. So moisture is really key for that. Third, if you're going to use burrow fumigants, High soil moisture is really important to maintain the efficacy of those particular gases. If you have dry soils, they really just don't work well. And then lastly, particularly as we move into the latter part of winter, it's going to be that period of time before gophers have one of their primary reproductive pulses. And so if we can target them before they have their new young, there's going to be a lot less of them versus if you wait to mid to latter part of spring, and those young are probably out and about and on their own now. And you might have three or four times as many gophers in a particular area due to that reproductive output. So trying to hit them before then is really key too. 
Now that said, gophers are active year-round, so you can manage for gophers year-round, and I would argue you should try to manage for gophers year-round. I would just focus most of your effort on that winter to early spring period to get the most bang for your buck and to make it easiest for you. And then throughout the rest of the year, do gopher management primarily on a maintenance level. In other words, hopefully you're knocking down those populations to an acceptable level in winter. And the rest of the year, you're just going to try to maintain them at that low level. If you keep that cycle up throughout a year, then you should be able to stay out of those real ebbs and flows of highs and lows and population densities. And it should just be a kind of background noise as far as management is concerned. A little bit of effort here or there, but not too much. You know, you can't draw a straight line and look at a field and look at gopher mounds and know whether there's going to be damage to the trees in this field versus the field next door that has the same level of mounding. But what do you think are some of the habitat modifications, whether you have the weed management in the rows, down the middles? What are some of those factors that if there's no other food around, do they then go to the trees? What's some of your general guidance there? Yeah, certainly what's available in an orchard is going to influence gopher management. It's generally a good idea to keep weed-free areas down the tree rows. The less weeds you have out there, and the less cover crops available, then obviously that's less food for the gopher. Now, what you don't really want to do is have an extensive gopher problem with a cover crop, for example, and then get rid of the cover crop before you get rid of the gophers, because now you've removed that food resource, and that will tend to push them onto the trees to cause more damage. But trying to manage those row middles and cover crops can be a good tool to reduce the likelihood of potential gopher problems. So you just have to do them in the right order. If you're going to eliminate a cover crop, get rid of the gophers first, then eliminate the cover crop. If you're going to alter the items in a cover crop, which can be a good strategy for reducing problems with gophers, you should probably reduce the gopher population first. If you're thinking about what to plant in a cover crop to try to discourage gophers, it's not really so much about what you plant to discourage them rather than trying to avoid plants that would encourage them. A good example is gophers really like nitrogen-fixing plants, and they like plants with large fleshy taproots. So nitrogen-fixing plants that show up in cover crops would be legumes, clovers, you know, things like that. And so avoiding those helps reduce the potential carrying capacity or the load of rodents that you might see out there in a particular area. Instead, you could focus on grasses. Those tend to have fibrous roots that the gophers find less attractive. They certainly will still eat them, but it takes more of them than it would for, you know, a nitrogen-fixing plant, which is high in protein, which really help reproductive output. Being careful what you decide to put out there can help some of your potential problems long-term. Anyways. Roger, we've talked a little bit about that habitat modification and whenever you have a cover crop or your row middles for one reason or another really seem to be bringing the gophers in, that before you remove that food source, making sure that you've also controlled the population. When it comes to controlling the population, it seems your go-to and the standard which we should start with is trapping. What have you found with having a control program based in trapping? So I do think trapping is a really good tool for managing gophers, but I will say, I also think your go-to tool will vary depending upon some of your local circumstances. 
An example of that would be some work I've done over in the Central Valley, uh, over on the west side around Fireball, for example. We tried to do some trapping out there during the middle of summer. The soil was hard as concrete and trying to trap in those situations, it would take 12, 13 minutes. We timed ourselves to put a trap set in. So obviously, if you're dealing with that kind of situation, then trapping isn't going to be the best tool. Soil type really influences which of the tools might work best for you, just like soil moisture does too. But as far as trapping is concerned, particularly when you're dealing with more ideal soil conditions, so relatively moist conditions, fairly friable soils, trapping can be a really good tool. The burrow systems or tunnels are oftentimes only four to six inches deep. So it doesn't take too much effort to probe and then dig down into the tunnels, and then you can quickly set the traps. And one of the great things about trapping that I like in particular is simply the knowledge that you've been successful in removing gopher out of a particular area. Because there are other tools we can use. There's burrow humans that work really well. There's some rodenticides that we can use that work fairly well. But you're never entirely certain how successful you are. I mean, you can kind of gauge how successful you were based on new mounting activity and some of those kind of monitoring approaches, but you don't really know exactly how many you got rid of. And with trapping, you can know exactly where you got one. You know where you missed one. And so when you miss one, then you can go back and try to get it again. Whereas with some of the other tools, if you miss them, it's a little bit more difficult to know when you missed them and where they're at. Plus, there is no use of toxic chemicals, so you don't have to worry about having any kind of special permitting for it. It's really easy to carry a few traps in the back of your truck so that if you see new mounds pop up, you can just quickly set a few traps and be on your way. And so that's a really nice thing about trapping, too, is just that lack of regulation and reporting that you oftentimes have with, with some of those other tools. And it also happens to be one of the most efficacious of the tools that we have. We've seen 92 to 94 percent removal rates of sites that have been trapped a couple of times, which is right at the top of the list along with aluminum phosphide, which is a borough fumigant. It really is one of the best tools out there from an efficacy perspective. We've also looked at the cost effectiveness of it too, because a lot of times people do think it's too time consuming, too much labor in order to be a practical tool. But we've also looked at it in a variety of settings and we found that it was every bit as cost effective as most of the other tools in part because of the high efficacy. So. Roger, we've covered trapping, which you don't need to get any permission from the government to do or be really paying attention to new rules and regulations. But turning to the more regulated ways of managing rodents and specifically pocket gophers here, what's the latest on rodenticides? So we do still have three general types of rodenticides that can be used for gopher management. They include strychnine, zinc phosphide, and first-generation anticoagulants. Examples of the first-generation anticoagulants would include difastinone and chlorofastinone. These are chronic feed materials, which means the animal generally has to feed on it over the course of several days to get a lethal dose. So when you're applying the bait out there for gophers, you're really relying on them basically to feed on it several times over the course of several days. And that can be a challenge for gophers. Because gophers don't really eat seeds for the most part. They're eating primarily roots and green vegetation. And so they don't necessarily want to eat a whole lot of that bait that you put down there. And for that reason, those anticoagulants, which oftentimes work really well for other rodent species, generally don't work so well for gophers. We can also use zinc phosphide, which is an acute toxicant. It kills after a single feed. 
But the problem with zinc phosphide is it kind of has this garlicky type odor and taste. The gopher might eat a little bit of it one time just to explore, you know, see what this new food is that you placed out here. And if they eat just a little bit of it, that oftentimes will be enough to cause them to get sick, but not enough to kill them. And then they learn to avoid feeding on it in the future. So with the zinc phosphide, you're really relying on them feeding on enough of it in one single setting to get that lethal dose. And oftentimes we don't see that either with zinc phosphide. So both those first generation anticoagulants and zinc phosphide, which oftentimes work well for other species, don't seem to work as well for gophers. So the third rodenticide that we have is strychnine. Strychnine also is an acute toxicant. It kills after a single feed as well, but it tends to be more toxic than the other products. And it probably is a little bit more palatable to the gopher than the zinc phosphide is. So we generally see by far our most consistent and best results with strychnine when it comes to the different toxicants that are out there. So that's the one that folks oftentimes rely on. The caution that I will put out there when it comes to strychnine, though, is that gophers can develop a resistance to strychnine if repeatedly used over time. And so there have been examples over the years of fields where strychnine used to work really well, and then after a number of years of repeated usage, it no longer works very well. We've even experienced this in a lab setting as well. Uh, So you do have to be careful if you use strychnine. It can be used and it can be a successful tool, but you need to mix and match your tools. It's just like all effective management of these pest species. Don't rely on just one tool. Rely on a whole suite of tools that are available in your toolbox to maintain long-term effectiveness of all of these different tools. A great reminder there with the strychnine and not becoming over-reliant. It's just like an insect pest, a disease where you have to rotate your modes of action if you're using chemistry at all. Turning to our burrow fumigants, that with so much of this management goes back again to it being really most efficacious during winter and early spring because soil moisture so important when it comes to these fumigants. Yes, that absolutely is true. When the soil is moist, it's basically closing off the pores in that soil. And so it holds those toxic gases in at a much greater rate. You get those dry soils, uh, there's cracks in the soil, the gases leak out, and, and it just doesn't hold it in. It's even more important for one specific burrow fumigant, and that is aluminum phosphide. They are basically tablets or pellets that you put into the burrow system. And they react with moisture within that burrow system to create phosphine, which is a gas, which is toxic to the animal. So without that moisture, it won't evolve that phosphine at a high enough rate for it to be effective. So that's a second reason why that moisture is so important when using that particular product. All that being said, when we talk about winter and early spring as being the ideal times to utilize these fumigants, But if you are irrigating throughout the year and you have sufficient soil moisture later in the year, then you can still use those fumigants. It really is the soil moisture that's key and not necessarily the time of year per se. It's just that it tends to be easier and more consistent based on the soil moisture that time of year. So what are some of the pros and cons of these different burrow fumigants and whether you end up buying a machine to apply these or use a service? The options kind of abound here. Sure. So there's several different kinds of fumigants that can be used. One of the ones that's marketed for gophers is gas cartridges. These look an awful lot like smoke bombs. You light a fuse and you put it in a burrow system and it creates a lot of smoke that is designed to asphyxiate the animal. 
These do work well for some species, in particular ground squirrels, but they do not work well for gophers. So even though they are registered and marketed toward gophers, we really don't recommend their use. Apparently the gophers sense that smoke immediately and just kind of plug up their burrow system and go the other way. And they can plug that up very quickly. So they don't really work so well. Aluminum phosphide, though, does work really well. Uh, like I mentioned, they are, are tablets or pellets. And you put them into the burrow system and it reacts with that moisture to create phosphine. This, along with trapping, is the other of the most efficacious tools we have for gopher management. Uh, we'll see 90 to 100% efficacy of burrow systems that are treated with aluminum phosphide. But of all of the different products and techniques that you can use, aluminum phosphide is definitely the most restrictive. Certainly, you have to be a certified applicator to use it. You have to file a notice of intent and pesticide use reports, just like you do for all your restricted use products. But you also have to file a fumigation management plan, which you don't have for most other tools that we use. You have to post your sites for 48 hours when you're treating. And some counties even require you to have monitoring devices on you to detect phosphine exposure. It's interesting because some counties read the label and say, yes, we have to do that. And other counties read the label and go, no, you don't have to do that. So I really would recommend that you contact your county act commissioner's office and get their opinion on how to interpret that label. Having to wear the monitoring devices is an extra hurdle because they're kind of pricey. So it just kind of depends. But again, I would argue if you are somebody that continually has problems with gophers and have been trying other tools to manage them and haven't been successful, then aluminum phosphide is probably something you might want to look into because it really is an efficacious tool. And then the other fumigants that we have are pressurized exhaust machines. And there's several different designs out there on the market. We found these pressurized exhaust machines to be relatively effective against gophers. We've seen 60 to 65% removal rates, certainly not as efficacious as trapping or aluminum phosphide, and maybe not quite as efficacious as strychnine even, but it is more efficacious than some of the other approaches out there. And the really great thing about them is that it depends on the machine that you get, but if you get one of those machines that has multiple hoses and probes that run from it, then you can treat multiple burrow systems at a time. And that allows you to move through fields far more rapidly than you would with most of the other tools that are out there. So you could potentially treat a field twice, maybe even in the amount of time it takes to treat them with something like aluminum phosphide or hand application strychnine. There's definitely benefits for these pressurized exhaust machines. Plus, they are not regulated as closely as aluminum phosphide, for sure. The regulations for these devices are evolving. So I would certainly check with your county act commission to see what the latest interpretation of them are. But Generally speaking, they have not been restricted use products. You can use one without any kind of special certification. But lastly, there's also a carbon dioxide injection device. The disadvantage of this particular device is that you have to carry a tank of CO2 around with you to inject it. So some people might find that a little bit more challenging than you know having the machine creating the gas for you because you might have to switch out tanks several times a day or go get new tanks, et cetera. Hasn't been tested extensively yet, but my guess is it's going to fall in line with the efficacy that we see from the pressurized exhaust machines. Even though the efficacy is only moderate for these pressurized exhaust machines for gophers, they tend to work really well for ground squirrels. And so if you're somebody who has problems with both species, it's definitely a device that you could utilize for both. So getting a little more bang for your bucks with that purchase, you can manage all of those burning rodents at once. Well, there's some great tools out there and shouldn't just rely on a single tool, 
but have integrated management, especially in those really tough situations where trapping alone or or denicides alone is not doing it for you. And very sage advice because the regulations around so many of these control measures are just continually evolving. It's really important to read the label and check with your local ag commissioner. Roger, your lab did some economic analysis of these different tools and the cost efficacy really depends on the number of times you use them and Do you have large acreage? Do you have small acreage? Could you walk us through a little bit of that? This particular study was looking at comparing two borough fumigants to trapping. And fumigants we looked at were aluminum phosphide, the use of a pressurized exhaust machine, and then uh, trapping. And when we're talking about economics for something like this, there's two main expenses. One is labor and the other are the material costs. So for something like aluminum phosphide, you're constantly going to have to buy more canisters for these pellets. So your material cost is going to stay the same throughout time. And your labor cost is going to stay the same. So it's a pretty static situation. So if you're going to treat one day a year, relatively few borosis, the cost is going to be pretty low and it's going to compare favorably to the other tools because there's no material costs other than the tablets or the pellets. Versus trapping, you have that initial cost outlay for the traps. There will be some additional trap purchase that will have to be made over time because eventually you lose some traps to predators or scavengers or maybe even a gopher runs off of the trap, et cetera. But you know, the primary expense is up front in buying those traps. And then after that, that, that material cost goes down considerably. So with trapping, you're mostly looking at just labor costs. So if you're going to do a lot of control over time, then it doesn't take too long before the trapping actually drops down below the cost of aluminum phosphide because you don't have that constant material cost every time. Now, this is a particularly acute situation when you're dealing with one of these pressurized exhaust machines because these machines can be pretty expensive. It depends on the machine you get. Some of them are $2,000, $2,500. And others, if you get the larger versions, can be $17,000. Obviously, there are benefits to utilizing or having those larger machines, but you know you don't want to spend $17,000 on a machine if you're going to use it two days out of the year. So you really have to consider how often you're going to use these devices. For folks or who are engaged in extensive gopher and ground squirrel management, then it might be cost-effective to go ahead and purchase one of these larger machines. But again, if you're somebody who's going to do it just for a couple of days a year, then the cost of purchasing those machines might be a little bit cost prohibitive. Really, you just got to consider in the end what the cost of the devices are and factor that in or amortize that out over the duration of how long you think you're going to utilize those products. Now, that being said, cost isn't the only driver. You know, efficacy obviously is important and you want to consider that. And we talked about which one of these tools are more efficacious. But you also may be concerned about some of the regulations associated with some of these different tools. Maybe you're somebody who doesn't like to jump through the hoops to utilize some of these products. But if you wanted to use fumigants, you couldn't do that with aluminum phosphide without jumping through those hoops. But you can with those pressurized exhaust machines. And so sometimes people just like to use the exhaust machines simply because they don't have the regulation. We didn't really look at pricing out strychnine or baiting in this particular study. But I would ballpark it something similar to what the aluminum phosphide products are, and that you constantly have those material costs, but the labor costs are going to be fairly consistent over time. Fabulous. And 
we'll certainly link to you know information on all of these management tools and including a great chapter you wrote, video that you shot with Catherine Jarvis Sheen on how to set the traps. Roger, do you have any final thoughts on anything we didn't cover? So I would just quickly mention that we've talked about some of the more commonly used tools for managing gophers, but there are some other strategies out there as well. One that I always like to talk about is flood irrigation. Hopefully there's not as much flood irrigation these days to water shortage issues, but some people do still maintain the ability to flood irrigate. A flood irrigation is a really good tool to help keep some of these burning rodent species under control. So if you're somebody that consistently has problems with gophers, for example, and you have the ability to flood irrigate, that's a tool that you could use occasionally to try to knock down those populations. We also see more and more usage of barn owl boxes to try to get barn owls to utilize an area and reduce rodent populations. And there's a fair amount of work going into that particular area these days. The data is still being analyzed, but some of the results seem to be positive, a slight reduction in these rodent populations out there. I would caution that they're probably not going to be enough to get rid of your gophers, but I would consider them as part of an IPM program and not the only tool that you want to rely on. And then lastly, you know, I was hitting on it previously, IPM. That's really the way to try to manage these species. You really want to utilize a combination of tools. Maybe you put up bow boxes and hopefully you're doing some kind of habitat modification to reduce the desirability of that particular area for these species. And then when those populations build up, you want to try to knock them down with some of the tools that we've talked about today. And again, we always have so many things going on out there in these orchards that it's hard to devote the kind of time it takes to maintain these rodent populations at low densities. But if at all possible, and I think it's great to carry a few traps with you. Whenever you see a new mound pop up, set some traps and get rid of that gopher right away and keep it from invading you into the orchard interiors. That way you can keep those populations at low levels and you really don't have to invest in that extensive gopher depopulation effort every year to knock down those populations. It's generally a lot cheaper to just get rid of one or two every now and then when they pop up versus waiting until once a year to try to knock those populations down and have that substantial expense, as well as the potential damage that they might cause uh, over that time frame. Great points, Roger, on integrated management and really take a holistic approach here and that concept of attacking throughout the year instead of pushing it off like your taxes and just doing it once a year. But it's a really important point just to close on that this winter and early spring is the best time when the levels are really low and you can take advantage of that to keep them low. So yeah, Roger, thank you so much for sitting down with me. You bet. Happy to help. Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UC A&R podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune Boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music. 